welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Anat Hakim. Now, Anat is the current Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Company Secretary at Eli Lilly. And what a fantastic story Anat has. She starts us off with her experience as a seven-year-old coming to the US, not having any language skills, not having any money, and how that kind of shaped her and having to move quite a lot, you know, progressing there through to Harvard and then, you know, becoming a lawyer at Latham. Watkins, a partner at Foley at Lardner, and working her way through general counsel positions to her current position. It's a marvellous story. So she takes us through that journey and talks to us about basically how she handled getting her arms around the GC position at Eli Lilly in the most difficult of circumstances, COVID, because she started in February 2020. It's a marvellous story. I really enjoyed the discussion. I know you are going to also. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the show. Hi, Annette. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Fantastic. Now, Annette, I'm not sure if you've listened to the show before, but if you haven't, what I usually do is a very high-level overview of my guest's career. So I might just do that. Then we'll do a bit of a deeper dive. So you kicked off your career at Latham & Watkins as an attorney there. Then you spent, I think, 12 years at Foley and Lardner and some of that time as a partner. A litigator, I'm assume, I assume. Is that is that correct? Yeah. That's correct. Love a litigator. But then you had two in-house positions before your current position. You spent four years at Abbott Labs and also WellCare Health Plan. And then you joined Eli Lilly in 2020. That's a high-level overview. Take me through the Anat story a little bit and the journey. And I'm particularly interested about the transition from law firm to in-house and how well prepared the law firm experience made you for an in-house transition. Okay. Yes. No, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It's it's definitely interesting. Everyone's got an interesting story. So hopefully it's somewhat unique. Really, you know, the journey started with Latham and Watkins in 1993. But, you know, part of the interesting part of my story, I think, started when I was seven and immigrated oh, to the I love going States. back that far. I love going back that far. <laughs> Take me through well, it. <laughs> it. Because it has such a profound impact yep. on my career in that, you know, I'm used to change and I'm used to transitions and also, you know, basically moved when I was seven, didn't speak any English, I learned English uh, watching, you know, Sesame Street, Electric Company, and some tutoring at a great public school in the Chicago suburbs. Yep. And then, you know, had just some interesting experiences, obviously getting used to a new culture, we moved around a lot, pretty much every two years. So I was always the new kid. I was always the new kid with a different name. And so really learned how to deal with change. I welcome change. You can imagine if you move every two years, you kind of get used to yep. it. Didn't welcome it at no. first. So, but change comes natural to me and I'm, I'm comfortable with it. That has had a lot of impact on my career. And also really appreciate, and this impacts the people I like to hire, people who've been through experiences not necessarily similar to mine, but where 
they had to persevere. Um, they had to overcome, you know, hurdles. When we first moved here, we didn't have a lot of money. So we literally used to go picking through garbage on Saturday afternoons. And it was like a fun activity when no you're a child, way. right? Is that, yeah, is that I mean, right? And your parents made it like a, a fun activity. Is that right? To... They did. We went. We actually went with other families who were similarly, you know, similarly just came to this country. And we, we had a home, like we rented, you know, so we weren't homeless, but... We didn't have much. And so I found a lot of toys and games and it was fun for the kids, you know? So again, you know, I think those things are relevant because they, they kind of shape who I am today. So obviously, you know, my, my parents were very, they put a great emphasis on education and um, ambition and really the American dream, you know, I mean, it sounds corny maybe, Not but it's, no, it yeah. was motivating and I still believe in it to this day. So anyway, my, my, you know, my dad was a big influence, really pushed me, you know, go for it, shoot for the stars. Right. And so really, really doubled down on academics, you know, went to the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and then went to Harvard Law School and, you know, a, a real source of pride given our family history, you know, so Latham and Watkins, yep. right. Uh, started out there as an attorney in the Washington DC office and then New York. Um, I was a securities litigator. Fantastic yep. training. Latham, you know, rotates you in the first few years. So you get a taste of every kind of practice. I knew I wanted to be a litigator. I knew my personality. I knew I liked to, you know, be in front of people and speak and speak yep. too much and yep. <laughs> be in court. So I spent five years at Latham and then moved to Foley and Lardner, was spent 12 years there and became a patent litigator. So change. Yep. Also, I moved there because I had met my husband, my future husband, and we, you know, left New York at the time and moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where I took the job with Foley and Lardner. And he went back to get his PhD at the college there at the university. So I became a patent litigator. And that was a challenge. That, that's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done because I'm a political science undergrad. I'm all liberal arts. And to be a, a patent litigator, you know, you just have to understand the really technical science. And then you have to explain it to a jury of people who just like me, and you had no technical training up to this point? No. So this was all on the job, essentially, the, the patent? All on the job. Wow. And it was all different types yeah. of patents. So it was like biotech patents, software patents. It was really, I mean, honestly, yeah. Jim, it was the hardest thing I've yeah. done is every one of those pieces to learn the technology and then communicate it. One of my favorite questions is what's the hardest thing you've done? And I can well imagine, yeah. I have a litigation background myself, and the technical construction litigation, so it was never that technical, but even in that context, yeah. that stuff was hard and you have to become an expert in a very short period of time. And so that was your experience. That's how yeah. you got on top of patent. Yeah litigation and learned to learn fast yeah right that was a real benefit yeah so i did that for 12 years and then really you know for the last five of those 12 years i realized i didn't want no longer really wanted to be at a law firm and i was looking for something else i even considered leaving the law because i just didn't really know what else i would really enjoy that would play to my strengths and so i saw an online ad for the head of ip litigation at abbott labs in chicago uh, this was in 2010, when I don't think it was that typical to find your yep. job online. Yep. I, I still can't believe it. It was the only job I applied for. I got the interview. I went out, had a few rounds and got the job. And so I went in-house for the first time. So I went to Abbott and I spent about two years as the head of the patent litigation global department, supervised around six attorneys, four paralegals. 
And we were defending Humira, which is the biggest drug in the world. And so it was an awesome responsibility. Again, very challenging, but I had a great team. At that point, in, in the beginning of 2013, AbbVie became a company and spun off from yeah. Abbott. So all of my patent department went with the company. And I requested to stay on with Abbott and change gears again and become the head of commercial litigation and government investigations, which is what I did for the next about four years. So total of six years at Abbott. At some point, you know, uh, while I was at Abbott and I loved it, it was a fantastic, I feel lucky. I, I really just had some amazing mentors, amazing experiences, but I wanted to be a GC and it didn't look like that was going to be the path there. And so I started looking and someone recommended me for a job um, as the general counsel at WellCare, which was a, in healthcare, but a very different company. You know, Ab Abbott was a pharmaceutical company. And then after the AbbVie spinoff was a general healthcare company, nutritionals and diagnostics and things like that. And then WellCare, where I went next in 2016, was a Medicare, Medicaid health insurance company, also publicly traded, but it might as well have yep. been a completely different industry. That was fascinating. Um, so that was my first GC job. Really enjoyed that. We did like seven deals in three years. And then the big deal was when we were bought out by Centene, which was a larger competitor. And then I was going to just take some time off. You know, obviously the general counsel doesn't stay when the company's bought out. So I was going to take a couple of years off, but then I saw that Eli Lilly was- And you, you couldn't resist, counsel. could you? <laughs> No way. Could not. Seriously, could not resist. I had known about Lily from my days at Abbott. The reputation, the company's reputation preceded it, both in terms of my patent litigation hat, I knew about it, and then just generally in the pharma industry. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go for it. I went for it, and here I am. So it's really amazing. Now, and that, there is so much I would love to unpack there, particularly those early years and how formative that was. And the I always, even my own kids, I ask myself, what are the kind of characteristics when you grow up very kind of reasonably comfortable that you want your kids to experience where they might not have had that opportunity if it was a, well, let's say it was a harder upbringing and you develop characteristics like like resilience, being able to deal with change, being able to deal with hardship. I'd love just to do a little bit more of a deeper dive there and, and talk about how formative that was for you. Yeah. Could, could, could you do that for us? Because it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. You know, I've thought about it a lot because you don't realize it as, it, as it's happening and it doesn't feel hard. It, it didn't. I mean, it's a testament to my parents probably. It, it just felt like normal. Yep. You know, I think it's just, you know, I, I, it, being comfortable with having to be alone, not in the sense of no friends or something like that, or even physically alone, but you just have to make it happen yep. because you're constantly, if you're moving all the time and you're the odd person out every yep. time you come in, you just have to start, I feel, this was for me true, just you can stand there and everything can swirl around you, but you know who you yep. are. And no, nothing can be done to you if you know who you are and if you're comfortable with that. And I'm not saying that that happened from yeah. the start, but that was, I think, for me, that's, a, that's something that definitely has shaped me, the ability to do that, because you, I needed that in order to always enter new. And then I appreciate that in people, you know, when I'm, when I'm hiring or, or even just people that I interact with, 
you can see if someone's been through yeah. something like that because you sense it because they didn't have everything handed to them. They know how to fight for things, but they also know to not be combative. So if that makes sense. It does. It's funny. So one of the recent questions I love asking in interviews also is tell me, tell me what the hardest thing you've ever done is. And often the story I get back is the move from the move basically to a new city to start again with no connections and often leaving a traditional path in the comforts, whether it's a home or family, whatever it is. And it's my favourite one, actually, because it demonstrates the courage, the fortitude to act, and the belief in oneself that one can do it. And once you've done that once or twice and you recognise you can get over those hurdles, it really is an empowering experience. So I, I know yeah. I've moved the family back in 2007, it was, to another country, a country that I didn't understand, didn't know the language, didn't know the laws, didn't have a single contact and was um, tasked with the job of building a practice. Wow. And on day one or two, I remember thinking to myself, what have I done? I've left a law firm practice, which was very comfortable, and what have I done? But at the end of that experience was, you know, five or six years later, I actually felt like I could do anything because I went, you know, I went from nothing. So that kind of that move, it is, a, and that challenge, I think it's liberating for anyone. And it, it's, as I said, it's a story I often hear. That's fascinating. Yeah. I can relate. The way you yeah. describe that, yeah. I can relate. So tell me then, when the position came from the opportunity at Eli Lilly, what was it? I'd love to understand what the recruiters or Eli Lilly was looking for in you and what you were looking for in the new challenge? Well, in terms of what I was looking for, it just felt like the most natural confluence of my experience in pharma, in healthcare, and then in the healthcare insurance industry. Kind of having seen the different parts of the healthcare system, it, it felt like this would bring it all together. And you put on top of that Lilly's reputation and kind of the, the, the time in, in Lily's yep. corporate life that we're in right now. And I remember saying, okay, well, I could take some time off and, you know, find something else down the road, or I could just be tired yep. and go right into this <laughs> next one. And I just, there was no way, you know, if they would have me, there was no way yep. I wasn't going to take the job. In terms of what the company was looking for, you know, I mean, high level, I think definitely, you know, kind of the, the, range or breadth of experience that I had because, you know, there's a, there's a large patent yep. component, you know, to the legal department as well as, you know, the international aspect, and then as well as dealing with Medicare and Medicaid and all the various other things. And so I think I had a good amount of that experience coming, you know, in one person. And then I think, you know, I had recently at WellCare, we had transformed that legal department and made a lot of changes there that I think were attractive, you know, to yep. the recruiters and ultimately to Lily. And so the, I think those things and, and yep. had yep. good interviews, you know, I really enjoyed meeting, you know, Dave, our CEO and, and the other members of the executive committee. And I just really wanted the job. I remember after the first round of interviews saying, oh, you know, when you, you know, you want the job. This is a fit. This is a fit for me. I hope it's a fit for them. <laughs> And you mentioned uh, your time at WellCare and um, transforming 
um, the department there. I, I know, I think in 2019, American Lawyers General Counsel of the Year Award. So congratulations on that. Yeah. Tell me about what gave rise to that award. What were the transformation initiatives. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah. Well, so the, the, when I came into WellCare in 2016, so it, the department's about 55 people. Um, so smaller than Lily's, but not, you know, so small as to, as, as to be too small, but yep. you know, it, it was, it was a good department, but what I did is came in and, and restructured it because one of the things we needed to do at the time in that company, you know, in, in WellCare's at that time, when I came in, was align the legal department with the business and how the business was structured. So that was one of the first things that I did. But the bigger underlying change was, which I always find is the most important change, was the culture. Historically, the department drew everyone that we hired from the, the Tampa, Florida area. That's where headquarters were, right. which made a lot of sense at you know at that period in the company's life. But the company was growing at a fast rate. I mean, it was a a fairly large, you know, I think when I joined it was probably 17 or 18 billion in revenue and, and grew over 20 my time there. So a large, you know, fairly large publicly traded company. And I just thought that we needed to broaden our reach for talent, but also bring in a culture that looked beyond the immediate geographical area, culture, things like that. So really just opened it up in terms of the culture of looking outside ourselves. I'm a big believer in benchmarking outside yourself. You, you can't yep. just compare yourself to what you were yesterday or 10 years yep. ago. Look outside and look at who the best are in your industry. And then that's your you know North Star. So yep. we started doing that. And then what we did is eventually I turned over the, like in terms of having 100% of the legal department based in Tampa, we ended up with about 50%, in fact, a little bit less than 50%, because it started putting people in, in the different affiliates. And the affiliates for WellCare were domestic. We weren't international. But they were in, I don't know, 15 or 17 different states. Yep. So we started hiring in different locations. Really were able to bring in some excellent talent. And then I also allowed telecommuting. Because if I found someone in, I remember we found someone in Boston. We didn't have a location in Boston. So she worked from home and she led a team. And I was comfortable with telecommuting at the time. I had done it in the past for one of the firms for Foley. And I know it works. And so we built the department that way. And I think got some fantastic talent. So that was another change. You know, also making sure we had the right people in the right roles, really focused on developing um, and having programs in place to, I call it curating the department. You develop each individual, whether they're an attorney or staff member, you kind of figure out what makes them tick, what are they good at, what do they love doing, and then you give them more of that, and you try to tweak the areas where they're not as strong, but you double down on where they're strong. And so those were some of the major changes. And then, you know, in terms of deals, like I said, we did a, a ton of deals and, and grew quickly. We set up a much better, I would say, more efficient litigation process, procedure, aligned outside law firms with our culture, narrowed our the number of firms that did work for us and really made sure that we were picking the right firms for the right matter. So a lot of processes and procedures. And then we did a lot of provider agreements, agreements with doctors. And we came up and with an automated system for that. So a lot of those types of things, it just made life better for the business because we created a bunch of self-help tools too where the business didn't need to come to an attorney and manually do things. So the combination of 
structural, cultural, people, and then tools, processes, automation. It was a lot, but it was great fun. And it brought the department together. Um, and even after we were sold to Centene, I remember we had a few Zoom calls, you know, where we all kind of would get together. And I still stay in touch with a lot of the people that we hired because we became so close, I think, especially through the development um, activities that we did. And tell me about the cultural part of the alignment. You talked about aligning the culture with the business, and it sounds like part of that was getting people closer to the, in the affiliates around the various states. Is that what you meant by aligning culture? And are there any other kind of initiatives around the cultural alignment that you focused on? Yeah, the aligning with the business was much more... Um, structural. It was, okay, the business has organized itself this way. Let's right. do it this way as well yep. so that we can counsel them in a way that matches. The cultural change was, was more, you know, not being overly conservative in the advice that we give, leading a discussion and trying yep. to move the client in a certain direction to help them with a business goal, as opposed to providing yep. the most, you know, conservative um, advice as a lawyer, yeah, possible, which is easy to do. It's harder to, you know, as a lawyer, being bold, you know, being able to deal with change. Because I mean, we were doing so many deals in a short time frame. There was a lot of integration happening as you were doing the next deal. Um, so it was more yep. kind of building resiliency, organizational resiliency. I remember bringing in a, a consultant who really was fantastic. And she took the entire department as well as different subgroups through various exercises of, you know, where we learned about each other and how, how I show up when things are going well, how I appear yep. to you, what are my behaviors. And I think this is a well-known psychological exercise that a lot of different people do. And then how do I show up when I'm stressed? And if I understand that about you, and other members of my department, yeah. then I can understand, oh, when Jim does this, closes his door, I know that I need to go in and have this conversation to help him, you know, come back to his natural. Or, or, or just leave him alone for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, then you decided you joined Eli Lilly at the most at the calmest possible time at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, okay? February 2020. Tell me about that. I'm not even sure if you've actually met in person any one of your team members, but I would love to know how you handled that. What were the strategies you put in place given the challenges, no doubt, you would have had joining at the time that you joined? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure there are countless people who have had to deal with what I had to deal with last yeah. year. But I think I joined mid-February. And then I remember March 6th, it was a Friday. And that's when we heard that we were going to go remote. Yeah. And of course, nobody knew for how long. I, I didn't even take everything with me because I thought, oh, yeah. yeah, it'll be a few weeks. I always think back now, if you would have told me before I started this job that it would be during a pandemic and I would meet hardly anyone in person, I think I would have said to you, well, that's going to be the hardest thing I've ever done. Okay. Yep. But no one told us, right? It just happened to all of us. And it's turned out to be not the hardest thing we've <laughs> ever done. It's turned out to be a terrible thing in itself, right? In terms of the pandemic. Yep. But in terms of coming in, onboarding, becoming part of you know of a department and becoming the new GC of a department, there were a lot of things that brought us closer together. And I think a lot of people probably would say that, yep. including that everybody just kind of showed up as themselves on Zoom or yep. Teams or whatever platform we used. So the things that I did when I realized, 
okay, I've met like 15 out of 220 people that are reporting into me. Yep. I Luckily, I met my peers on the executive committee and had had time with, with Dave, our CEO. Okay, so what do I do to meet the other 205 people all over the world? And so I just started setting up half-hour calls with, first of all, small groups. We call them coffee chats. And so through the summer, we would just randomly pick people in the department. We'd have coffee chats and you just talked about yourself in not work, but yourself. Yep. You know, what country are you from? What do you like? Blah, blah, blah. How are you dealing with this? How does it feel? Then I would start having individual conversations with people. And that took through probably November, December. So like April, May, we started, I think, and just did it all year until I met everybody. And then on top of that, so it was a concerted effort, right? Yep. Can't go to them. Let's meet online. I think we probably became closer and I got to know more about people that way than had I flown out to you know another country and spent a few hours standing in front of the group yep. and talking. So, you know, again, I think everyone's kind of realized that about the pandemics benefits to the extent you can even call this, you know, call anything a benefit of a pandemic. Yeah. The other thing we did was just, you know, more frequent communication, which comes natural to me because that's one of the things I emphasize is over communicate because so much get, yep. gets lost. But we just, you know, we're on video all the time. I was on with different people, different permutations. And then you know, I thought it was important to always take time to just ask, how are you doing? You know, and well-being was obviously a big topic. Lily was at the forefront of, a, of you know, therapeutics for the pandemic in connection with the pandemic with COVID-19, that it was both important to focus on well-being, but we were working so hard to support the company's efforts on testing and then on the, the bamlanivimab therapeutic and others that it was the truth is everybody was just running themselves ragged and there was no other choice. Yep. But it's just being constantly in touch and checking in and just putting in the time to meet people that I think for me, at least it was, it was great because I felt connected and hopefully others did too. And so that that's the people side. What about the actual, the function itself and getting your hands around or yeah, your arms around the whole legal department, what your goals and issues, what, what were going to be the early priorities for you? How did you go about doing that and then coming to a decision on, okay, here are the top three things we have to do in the next 12 months? Yeah, that's harder, right? Because you have to get a feel for it, right? So luckily I, I had been a GC before. It, it, that was a big plus, I think. Also, my direct reports at Lilly were fantastic in terms of the substance of the issues that we were facing. They would prepare briefings for me. So I asked, you know, they were constantly briefing me. So that was a lot of kind of a lot of information, you know, drinking from a fire hose information on the substance of what are the issues. We also, though, in July launched the legal department transformation, which was built around, you know, five pillars of similar to well care, being bolder, being more agile counseling to smart risk, yep. focusing on developing people. But at that point, we had already been doing it, right? Because the pandemic forced us to move faster. Yep. And so it actually made getting my arms around what kind of department we were going to be easier in some ways, because I could point everyone to it and say, look, we've been doing it for the last X number of months. Let's keep doing that. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, but also it was just, Substantively and otherwise, and deciding what our priorities, just a lot of conversations with the teams within legal, but then also with the clients. A lot of conversations with 
what's working, what's not, you know, what can we do better? What's on top of mind for you? Where do you need our support? Where do you not need our support? And then we kicked off kind of to culminate, to kind of put a cap on that, a calibration exercise in, I think it was like the end of Q3 of last year, where we went through and, and looked at what every person, we haven't gotten through the entire department, is doing, how they spend their time. Are they spending their time on enterprise level things of importance and how much of it versus things that could either be their manual, they can be automated, they can be outsourced, or maybe they belong somewhere else. And so that helped me get a real, like a picture, like a map of the department. And so that helped helps also with well-being because we can figure out what we can take off people's plates, but then also where should we be spending our time and who should spend it where? And we're in the process of implementing that now. And it's still busy, but the frenetic pan, you know, COVID-19 focused part of things was mostly last year and into the yep. beginning of this year. And it feels like it's hopefully normalizing at this point. So looking ahead now, if you to identify what, what are the top three priorities that you have for the department, to the extent that you can share them, what, what would they be? Yeah. Well, I will necessarily can't share the substantive. <laughs> yep. But I'm seeing it happen and the, you know, and, and which is thrilling. People pushing themselves to lean into their role, yep. right? Which makes them excited and interested and passionate about what they do. So in terms of the cultural transformation, not that they weren't before, yeah. I'm not, I don't mean to say, oh, you know, it was completely different before, but you know, we're at a unique point in, as an industry, as a world, as a company, you know, um, with, a, with an exciting array of options in front of us. And so people are excited to you know, be bold in their practice of law and to, to yep. lead, to help you know, make those things support the business. I would say that's probably, when I see that happening, it's exciting. The second thing that is another big priority because I think it infiltrates everything we do and makes us better is I'm seeing a lot more breaking down of silos within legal and cross-communication and collaboration, which is intentional. You know, Every legal department I've worked for you see a certain amount of silos. It's just, that's just how people are, you know, and breaking them down is hard because it's what people are used to. They're used to working with the same people day in and day out. We get comfortable, but we are, we've been intentionally cross-fertilizing and inviting people to meetings that on the surface, maybe they don't necessarily, you know, have a view or an involvement in that issue, but you find that there's always, at the end of the day, that's where the best ideas get generated is this cross-pollination. So I'm seeing a lot of that. And then, I mean, obviously, overarching all of that is supporting the business so that we can get yeah. medication and medicine, you know, medicines to patients. And we support the business in so many different ways to do that, you know, both in terms of regulatory approvals and, you know, getting, getting, making sure we can help get those medicines out the the patents that we you know write and protect and in order to get get those protections in place and get the the medicines out the litigation we engage in to protect the company just you know the advice we give which is probably the biggest part of what we do day in and day out on how to make sure that we maximize the ability to get this stuff out it's just so exciting and i think those are the things that are day in day out let's keep doing that 
Because once you do those things well, you know, the, the knowledge of the law, like we're all subject matter experts, you know, that's not the secret sauce, so to speak. I love the get, getting people to lean into their roles and really finding what people are passionate about. And if it's not a particular role or part of a role, being able to shape it so it is because there is nothing more firstly personally empowering than being passionate about what you're doing and then secondly at the organizational level if you have people are passionate about the roles they're undertaking in your organization that that stuff is rocket fuel so absolutely i mean you've probably talked to people who are in a job because only because of the money and you know and i know that there is no way that that fuels you right to use your analogy day in and day out. It's impossible. It, it just can't. And so you can see when a person's passionate about something. And I, my test, you know, is always for myself, at least, would I do this if I was getting paid yep. a lot less or not even getting paid at all? Like, what is it that comes naturally that I love to do? And that's the place where I think when a person finds that, and hopefully they can get yep. paid for it. <laughs> but you know, that's the exciting thing, and you just see it, and it's rocket fuel yep, to use yep. your word. And then the second bit about the, the you know the the cross fertilization collaboration amongst team members. When things on the surface look like there can't be any reason to communicate or collaborate, because for example, people are in different areas or supporting different functions. It is amazing when you actually get people together with seemingly nothing in common, and then tossing around ideas. So I again doubling down on that. I love that too because that's the bit that's really surprising and that's the bit that's energizing too when you have a different perspective from a team member who you know supporting one of the you know completely separate business units say or 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 different functional areas so 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 that's a great one i think to lean into too no and and you know a lot of it's not like any of this is like unique thinking yeah you read a a book you open a management book and you'll read about you know passion and lean in and all these words i've found that the difference is that you have to stay on it every day, right? You, can, you can't just like roll it out and say, okay, see you later, do these five things, you know, I'll, I'll come back and check on you in three months. It's every day in everything we do, like, are we applying these five things, right? And if every person that's managing a group reminds them of those five things every day and points out when they've done them, Yep. And maybe redirects yep. if they haven't. That's where you see the difference. It's like being on it all the and time. And that's actually the hard bit. <laughs> that's the hard yeah. bit. And I'm going to ask you one of my myth buster questions. What is what myth is there out there about, let's say, being a great GC, which you'd like to dispel? Yes. Well, this one's personal because I subscribed to this oh. myth for many years. And it's probably uniquely applicable to litigators, right? But there was this belief that I had, and I had heard it from, because I, when I first started being interested in being a GC, I called different and interviewed different headhunters at the different big headhunting firms, like what, what do companies look, look for? And the theme always was, and therefore my belief that, you know, typically it comes out of, you know, like you, you have um, commercial lawyering, you know, business experience, you've done deals, you need to understand corporate governance, you know, those types of things. And that it's hard to break yep. through if you're a litigator. And so I spent a lot of time worrying about that. How am I going to do this? Do I need to like get out of litigation? Because I'd always been in commercial securities or 
patent litigation. But my GC at the time was formerly a litigator. So I'm yep. like, okay, well, that's one. And then I also realized, okay, well, I'll look for companies that have large risk portfolios or are highly regulated, you know. But the reality was, you know, I did take all these, you know, courses, CLE courses on, you know, corporate governance just to try to learn, but you can't really yeah. learn it until you're in front of the board and dealing with the board. When I interviewed for the job and then I got the WellCare job as my first GC job and I started doing the board support, you know, going to the board meetings and corporate governance. And then I did, you know, seven deals, even though I wasn't a deal lawyer and learned so much, I realized, oh, that these aren't like necessary to get this job. What you need is judgment, like really good judgment and the ability to learn anything. And so and good people skills, you know. And so that's kind of like where I said, oh my gosh, I spent all that time worrying. And all those people told me that it's so hard. And maybe it is hard, but those it's the judgment. It's it's the qualifications that I learned as a litigator that really served me best when I became, you know, GC. So that was the myth. A myth shout out to all the litigators me. out there. You don't need to change. You're good enough. Right. <laughs> if you had your time again... In any part of your career, is there anything that you would do differently? Yeah, the one thing maybe I would do differently is go in-house earlier. I spent 17 years at two different law firms, five years and then 12. And I would say that, like I said, in those last five years of the 12, you know, I probably just maybe would have made the jump earlier, but it turned out okay. You know, I really like being in-house. It exercises a muscle that I, that doesn't feel like work, which is, making fast decisions and judgment calls and trying to pull together a whole bunch of disparate information from different sources. And I just really enjoy that. Didn't know that at the time though, you know, until I did it. And you probably, with 17 years at a law firm, you may well have been in a position at year, whatever it might've been, 10 or, you know, well, well before the 17. Yep. Anything that you spent too much time worrying about in the past and that which on reflection wasn't time well spent? Well, I would say worrying that as a litigator, I couldn't break it. Right. Couldn't I get think, there. Yep. I think the worry, I spent a lot of time worrying about that and how I was going to make up for my apparent yeah. deficiencies. <laughs> Don't tell me you also <laughs> suffer from the imposter syndrome. <laughs> it's just a question of degree of course and and what about advice to your 25 year old self (laughs) so much (laughs) you can't plan out the best thing in your life the best things in your life are the things you didn't plan for that has absolutely been true i know a lot of people say it because it's true and so just don't worry so much about planning and don't try to plan too far in advance because just be on the lookout keep an open mind look out for opportunities and learn how to recognize them when they come. And that has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jim. Fantastic. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit.com. P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.